Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we are here to prove that Paul Carson knows about and gets to talk about something other than coronavirus. Yes, he is an infectious disease and public health specialist. And today, in our reprieve from all things related to a certain worldwide health event, he's going to discuss something that has even longer-lasting effects in our health. That is, how does religious practice influence our health? And it's amazing, because it does. Yeah, it's nice to see Paul getting interested in something other than COVID. But believe it or not, I think this might predate his interest in COVID. Oh, he's been interested in this for years. In fact, uh, this is based on a presentation he gave at the uh, 2020 Catholic Medical Association Annual Educational Conference. If people are interested in hearing that presentation, please go to cathmed.org and you can actually download that presentation as well. Very good talk. We kind of wanted to just set the background a little bit before we have Paul on. You know, the the topic today in general are the benefits of religious practices, the health benefits, things that even people that are non-religious, secular people can appreciate. Uh, obviously, your coasts here are religious people. And so we wanted to go through and figure out how many people are religious, so to speak, and what health practices or what religious practices do they partake in normally? So we did some data mining to kind of set the stage. <laughs> Very good. And so most of this data comes from the Pew Research Center, and they, they do a lot of data gathering regarding religion. Where does that come from? You know, when I was younger, I used to think it had to do with, you know, persons in the pew, like the pews you physically sit in in church, but it, it's somebody's name, I think. Oh, is it really? I thought it was. Yes. I thought it might be Pew as well. I'm sure it's a, a clever little acronym. Somebody will probably let us know and have pity on us. <laughs> well, on the whole, um, people in America, this most of this data is from uh, the last five years or so, most people in America are religious as far as believing in God. There's a, a question they asked, how many people believe in God? And 63% of people said they were certain that God exists, and 20% of people were fairly certain. That's interesting because when you juxtapose that with how many people believe in heaven and hell— 72% of people believe in heaven, and only 58% of people believe in hell. Some some people, I think, I guess based on these numbers, would think there's heaven but no hell. Right. Um, the breakdown of different types of religions in America, of people who are religious, um, basic, actually this includes everybody, because uh, 70% total are Christian. Um, a subset of that being Catholic, 20% are Catholic. 23% would be classified as the nuns. Um, they're subgroups of agnostics and atheists. Uh, and 6% of Americans are non-Christian religions, such as Hindu or Muslim. And four, or I'm sorry, 1% of people said they didn't know what religion they were. So, and to clarify, nuns mean that they do not identify with any particular religion. Yes, N-O-N-E-S, um, right. N-O-N-E-S, not like the habited nuns. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, one of the things that Paul's going to really focus on is religious practices. So one one piece of data we found was how how what percent of people, I guess, attend religious services at least once a week. And that number is 36%. Um, 33% of people attend religious services less than weekly. And about 30% of people attend religious services never or seldomly. So about a third each. Um, hmm. As far as frequency of prayer, too, another way to kind of get, get our mind around health practices, about 55% of people say that they pray daily, 16% of people say that they pray weekly, and 6% of people say that they pray monthly or less. And 23% uh, of people actually say they never pray. And so that's kind of where we are as far as practices currently. And as one can imagine, um, these these numbers have generally worsened in the past decade. So we want to talk to Paul and learn about why these are important, not only from a religious perspective, but also from a public health perspective, which is his focus. And one of the things that I know we're going to discuss is the fact that even if religious people do some kind of health practice more often, when they compare people with religious practice to those without, 
even if both groups do the same things, the ones with religious practice still come out better in a number of different variables. So it's fascinating. It's just, it's not just because they might eat better or sleep better or have wider relationship networks. So this is going to be a blast with Paul. And before we get there, let's do our patented medical trivia question of the day. Category is public health versus personal health. According to 2012 data from the Boston Foundation and the New England Healthcare Institute, 20% of our health is based on genetics. That is, we were dealt a hand and we can't trade it in for another hand of cards. But the other 80% is modifiable. Out of that 80%, what percent of our health is affected by visits to medical offices and hospitals? And therefore, what percent can be affected through the work of public health officials and activities? So break that 80 down, you know, 40-40 or whatever it might be. Bonus question. What percent of our healthcare budget is spent on public versus private healthcare? So it's going to be interesting to see if what has the greatest impact is also where the greatest dollars go or not. But we're going to be back here on Dr. Doctor after the break with our special guest, Dr. Paul Carson. Welcome back to our second section of this show. And we have with us today our special guest, Dr. Paul Carson, public health, infectious disease, going to talk about something unrelated to that worldwide health crisis going on now. We're going to talk about the health benefits of religious practice. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And I want you to start at this section with a story about why this topic is so important. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me back. And you're taking a risk here to see if I know anything other than COVID, but uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I, 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 one of the things that uh, piqued my interest in this issue of spirituality and health, health, uh, spirituality and medicine, came very early in my practice, my first year of practice. I joined a new uh, group of physicians as an infectious disease specialist. But one of my partners still maintained a general medical practice. And I, and I always kind of, uh, you know, had a little queasiness when he'd go away on vacation because we were supposed to cover his general medical practice, which I hadn't done for a few years. I wanted to do infectious disease, wasn't really that happy about, you know, covering the diabetes, the hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. And I was covering his uh, clinic practice when he was uh, gone on vacation. And I had on the schedule uh, a middle-aged woman <clears throat> who was in for a follow-up visit. Uh, I believe it was for like diabetes and hypertension that had been pretty well controlled. 15-minute scheduled return visit to you know check on her meds and make sure everything was going okay. I walk in the room. She's staring down at the floor, has this very flat affect, can barely look up to make eye contact with me. I introduce myself, tell her I'm covering for my partner, Dr. Kind, and uh, ask her kind of how she's doing that day and uh, what she was there to see me about. She proceeds to tell me that she's had a lifelong struggle, uh, this is sort of right out of the chute, that she's had a lifelong struggle with um, depression, that her mother committed suicide, her sister committed suicide, and she was planning to commit suicide. She, she did not want to live anymore. She had a plan and um, really was in no mood to sort of be talked out of it. And I'm looking at the schedule <laughs> and I'm like, I don't do this stuff anymore. And I'm trying to dust off my brain like, okay, somebody who's got a plan, that's bad. Um, you know, somebody who's got a family history, that's bad. And I've got 15 minutes to try and you know, figure this out. And I'm thinking this is like involuntary commitment. And like, what does that entail? Is that calling a judge? And I got to try... And I was like, oh, Lord, Lord, help me here. I, I do not. And so my first question to her was, do you have a psychiatrist? She did. He was on vacation. She refused to see any of his uh, partners in covering, uh, would, wouldn't go and do that. And so now I'm more looking at the involuntary commitment. And finally, I just started praying. And I just, in my own mind, I was praying, God, help me here. I don't know how to help this woman. And I had a very, like, this doesn't happen to me. It's happened to me twice. Uh, this is the first time it happened. It was a very clear, very insistent message in my uh, heart, mind, thoughts to ask her if I could pray with her right then. 
That is not something I did in my practice, not something I was comfortable doing. And I immediately started going, wait a minute, God, you, maybe you want me to tell her I'll pray for her. I can do that. <laughs> and and it, was, it was one of the most insistent things I'd ever felt. So I asked her her faith background, if she had any faith background, and she said she was raised Catholic. And I'm like, okay, that helps. Um, was she practicing? No, hadn't been in church in a long, long time. And I said, you know, this may sound a little bit strange. We've just met. I know you don't know me, but would it be okay if I pray with you? And then she looked up and made eye contact with me and said, yeah, th that would be okay. And, um, and I put my hand on her shoulder and I'm sure I just flubbed through. I don't remember what I said. And I was, you know, flubbing through some, you know, prayer that was not comfortable for me to do. And, and the tears just started coming from her. She just started having this, you know, streaming, streaming of tears. And, and after she kind of gained her, regained her composure, she said to me, this is what's missing in my life. This is what I've been away from. Uh, I, I see that I need God back in my life. I see this is the answer. I've been away from the church for years. And I'm like, you know, I didn't even talk about any of this stuff. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so we talked a little bit and I asked her, like, what do you think about your plan? No, I don't want to die. I don't want to end my life. I was very nervous about letting her out of my office. <clears throat> So we talked a bit more and I said, would you be willing to meet with the pastor of my church? He lives not far from where, you know, there, his church is not far from where you were. She was willing to meet with my pastor. I said, will you see me at the end of the week here? My, my partner wasn't back yet. She said, I'll see you back. She met with my, my pastor. She had a great visit with him, came to see me back and was just effusively thanking me for reconnecting her with her faith. She wrote me a month later saying she was in a much better place. And she wrote me again a year later saying, you know, thanking me again, for helping her to reconnect with her faith, which had been a tremendous resource for her to deal with her depression and her suicidal ideation. And this little light bulb, like, like there, here's this untapped resource there that, but for the grace of God, I would have never thought to tap into um, that gets to the heart of one of the, of what we're going to talk about today. That's absolutely right, because it's going to show in this instance how in, at least in mental health and this, it can change a life, save a life. Absolutely. So, so, so Paul, this changed your life too, but it wasn't, the, was it the beginning of your academic interest in this subject or did something else happen? No, uh, you know, something else happened uh, to kind of get me in that sort of academic interest. I, I struggled over the course of my clinical practice to figure out how to integrate my faith into my practice and how to do that respectfully and judiciously, but, uh, you know, not afraid. Um, I think I did well at it. Sometimes I think I did not very well at it a lot of times, <clears throat> but I was at a, when I was at, as I was, as a professor at North Dakota state university, I was at a symposia, uh, that was a monthly, uh, symposia run kind of organized by an atheist group in town and, and with a few professors on campus that was dedicated to a monthly discussion on, uh, matters of, religion and science, this sort of intersection between religion and science. For the most part, they were, they were interested in bringing in speakers and having discussions that sort of bashed creationism or, you know, this sort of thing. But they, in the spirit of fairness, they tried to have, you know, balanced discussions. It, I'm not sure that, that they succeeded very well with that, but I went, I went to a number of these. And after, I don't remember what the talk was, but after one of the talks, one of my NDSU colleagues who was a professor in the department of, uh, I think it was computer science, got up and said, you know, and she was part of this organizing group. She said, you know, I, I can't understand why people would pursue a religious practice in their life. This has to be terrible for people's mental health, terrible for their physical health. I mean, really to believe in a God who would judge people, who condemns them for sin, who would send them to hell. This has to be traumatic to children to bring them up in a home believing this. And, and I, you know, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is like the exact opposite of my personal experience. <laughs> certainly the, certainly not, you know, syncing up with what I had anecdotally on, on handful of, you know, uh, stories in my own professional practice. But I thought, you know, I wonder if there's any data on this. So I started looking into that. I started searching, you know, is there any medical literature? Is there any scientific research on this? And I was shocked to find there was a huge amount of very robust clinical research on this topic that I thought, what is going on here that none of us know about this? 
so that's that's what piqued my interest to dig into this deeper and and has been um, an ongoing uh, personal and academic interest for me. Paul, how how would you say the average, you know, modern American medicine, the hospital or, or a secular doctor, how do they view religion and spiritual life when they care for patients? Uh, non-existent uh, for the most part. Um, so when you look at um, the, the disconnect between, you know, polling a physician's belief in God versus, you know, our patient's belief in God, there's a, there's a pretty substantial difference. And when you ask patients, how often did you have spiritual questions addressed, even cancer patients who are facing end-of-life questions often, it's, it's very rare to non-existent. And, and it's really kind of a matter of, you know, physicians don't know the language. They don't know what to ask. It's not on their radar. They kind of think that's a personal matter. That's something you do at home with your family, with your church, with your pastor, not part of, you know, the hard science of medicine. And is that different than, say, 50 or 100 years ago, the way that doctors view religion in their patients? Yeah, you know, um, I'm not I'm not certain I know about like doctors per se, but certainly healthcare systems were intimately driven and run by um, by the religious. It was religious sisters. It was other uh, other faith traditions that built our hospitals for the most part. I, I mean, nearly all of them 100 years ago had a religious legacy and background. And those things were, first of all, it was, you know, seen as part of the mission of Christians to minister to one's health, to, to minister our, to our brothers and sisters' health. They were seen as intimately connected. And I think there was much more acceptance of uh, that, that deep connection uh, 50 to 100 years ago that is not present now. Paul, you, you had said that the way doctors view religion or their, their own personal religious beliefs and practices are a lot different than their patients. We, we quoted some data that said maybe 80, 83% of people thought, you know, they were fairly certain that God existed or more than fairly certain. Do you have data about physicians in general? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, this is one of those ones I wanted to kind of refresh my memory kind of looking up. So 2016 Gallup poll found 89% of the general public believe in God, 75% uh, considered religion of considerable importance in their lives. So one of the studies, uh, a couple couple different studies that looked at um, healthcare professionals. One was looking at uh, clinician clinician attitudes in the ICU, place where people have a lot of end of life concerns. Right, families right. have a lot of end of life concerns. When they polled attendings, um, asking them uh, whether or not they agreed that addressing spiritual concerns was important. Attending physicians, 80% said, yeah, I think that's important. When asked, how often do you do it? Um, it went down to about 15%. Wow. Um, slightly better for nurses, slightly worse for critical care fellows. So younger, typically um, people run younger trainees. So a real disconnect there recognizing, yeah, this is probably important to my patients. Uh, I don't, I don't go there. I don't know how to do that. So as we move into the hard research, you're going to talk about religious practice or are you going to talk about religion or are you going to talk about spirituality and what do you specifically mean by this? Yeah. So, so, so definitions are kind of important here. So you, when you see the research on this, you see research, um, you know, talking about uh, terms like spirituality, about religion <clears throat> um, and uh, uh, about spiritual practice. So, uh, Spirituality is sort of a more general amorphous term, which um, concerns itself with matters of utmost importance. And uh, Harold Koenig, one of the most prominent research in this, researchers in this area, would say it really needs to be concerned with the transcendent. Uh, religion is more about particular expressions of spiritual beliefs, codes of ethics, doctrine, dogma, um, uh, ritual liturgy, etc. Religiosity um, is actually the thing that's usually measured the most because it's the easiest to measure, uh, unfortunately. It, religiosity is actually the level of involvement in religious practice. For example, how often do you go to church or how often do you attend a house of worship? So that's that's actually the parameter that's studied the most. There's been attempts to try and build you know, survey tools and standardize those for the other things, but by far and way wide, religious practice uh, is the thing that's studied the most. And there's a lot of big medical centers that are looking more closely at this, right? I know 
I am recently out of training. They talked to us about this, but they said, basically, you're supposed to ask people if they have faith and then you don't necessarily do anything about it. You got to make that box go away in the email. <laughs> I, but- checked the yeah, right. so- I checked the box and maybe refer them to a, you know, a pastor. Yeah. Call the pastor who yeah. by almost for certain is not going to be their, their chosen yeah. pastor, you know, but well, yeah, at least they told you to check a box. I mean, I didn't get anything. Uh, in my training, nothing. What are some of these big secular medical centers looking for? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. And the, it, this is the thing that really shocked me the most is that it's been a pretty intense area of high quality research from some of our best uh, research universities in the country because there's an increasing recognition like this is a big deal and it really matters. And what do we do about it? So um, Duke, Harvard, University of Michigan, George Washington University, Berkeley University, all of these have formal centers or formal programs of study around spirituality and health um, and and are producing really some high quality research on this. And Paul, by now, our listeners are probably dying for some data. So let's start mental health data. Okay, that that would be considered softer because people don't consider this as being in the body as much, even though uh, it it is in the body. What does the data show? Yeah. So actually, this is where it started off the most, like what kind of mental health effects do people who are regularly engaged in religious practice um, have compared to their non-religious or a-religious counterparts? And and it's it's overwhelmingly positive, better management of depression, better management of anxiety, less initiation of anxiety, less initiation of depression, um, uh, decreased risk of, of suicide, decreased risk of suicidal ideation better harmony in the home, better uh, um, uh, outcomes with like around the issues of like juvenile delinquency, teen pregnancy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. One of the most powerful uh, studies that's been done, when we look at research design, one of the things we, I mean, what's what would be best of all would be randomized controlled trials. I'm going to randomize 10,000 of you to start going to church every Sunday. I'm going to randomize 10,000 of you to not go to church. Well, we're going to be religious. Yeah. So you know, that's not going to pass an IRB. It's not going to work. It's So the next, best, the next best category of studies we have are what are called prospective cohort studies. These are kind of the granddaddy of observational uh, research. So just to kind of put this in people's mindsets, one of the biggest, best prospective cohort studies ever done was the Framingham study. Framingham, Massachusetts, they followed just darn near the whole town of Framingham for decades. And that's where we learned that like diabetes and high cholesterol and hypertension were all risk factors for stroke and heart attacks and, and right. so on. So a similar study is, is one called the Nurses Health Study. This is a study that has followed almost 90,000 nurses they're entering, I think, the I think they're coming up on the third decade of this. So they followed these nurses over their lifespan. They followed them through their career, and now they're following their children. And they look at like all kinds of risk factors for good health outcomes and bad health outcomes. And one of the things they've measured is how often they attend religious uh, worship. Never, less than once a week, once a week, more than once a week. Uh, interestingly, the ones that um, attended religious practice once a week or more than once a week had an 84% uh, reduction in suicide, 84% reduction in suicide compared to their um, non-religious attending counterparts. And that um, effect was even higher. So, so that's just looking at, at the outset of the study. Did you go to church? It wasn't dependent on, did they keep going to church? If they asked them, did you keep going to church one decade, two decades in, the effect was even higher. It was in the mid nineties. And that's that's amazing when you compare it to something like you know the SSRIs like exactly. those yeah. are in the forty percent range. For, I, you know, I, I didn't look that up, Andrew, but you know, you would know that sort of thing as primary care uh, practitioner. I, I don't think there's anything that matches that kind of protective effect for suicide. Um, yet we never hardly ask about it. Yeah, people don't prescribe that very often, but you know it. <laughs> It seems like based on the, the data, this is secular data too, it would be a yeah. smart thing to start talking about. And, and before we go to our first break here in a minute or so, give us a flavor for some of the non-mental health benefits, Paul. Yeah. So, you know, people started observing these, uh, you know, mental health benefits again, across the board with most mental health disorders. The one that doesn't really seem to be responsive to religious practice is schizophrenia. Not too unsurprising. I mean, that's a, that's a really severe 
you know, uh, uh, disorder with um, perceiving reality. But um, when we go to physical health, um, people, people start getting interested in this as well. And we can find now numerous similar prospective cohort studies that look at risk of coronary artery disease, hypertension control, cerebrovascular disease, um, cancer outcomes. And the story is pretty much universally the same. Better outcomes, sometimes substantially better outcomes in the cohort that regularly engages in religious practice compared to their similar a-religious counterparts. You know, one, one of the studies I kind of th find interesting was looking at African-American women with type 2 diabetes mellitus. Um, they found that African-American women who were regularly engaged in, uh, you know, religious practice had much better control of their diabetes, had much better views about their diabetes, much better coping skills, and better long-term outcomes. Uh, again, uh, you know how difficult it can sometimes be to control diabetes, to get people to be compliant with that, to to um, uh, uh, you know, prevent the adverse outcomes. Why would we not be engaging this potential resource for? And I want to ask one more question before we go to our break, and that is your ice bath study <laughs> one. I love this one yeah. of the effects of religious versus secular meditation. Yeah. So yeah, this is a fascinating study. Actually, I, when I gave this talk uh, at our Newman Center, and the pastor of the Newman Center shared this study with me. It was published in the Journal of Behavioral Medicine, so a high-quality journal. And what they did is they gathered up, I think these were mostly college students, and um, they asked them to uh, do one of three things that they kind of uh, uh, trained them in. One was sort of secular meditation, where they would sort of chant, I am happy, I am peaceful, I am calm. Um, Second uh, a group was taught to like how to relax, like picture yourself, you know, your shoulders relaxing, your arms relaxing, your legs relaxing, sort of the kind of, you know, biofeedback kind of relaxation technique. And the third group was asked to do a spiritual meditation. It didn't really matter if they had a religious background or not. Even They even asked the, you know, if they said, I don't believe in God, they, they were included in, you know, the, this group, unless they were opposed to it. And then they would, then they, they would let them cross over to a different group. And in the spiritual meditation group, they were asked to meditate on God is love or God loves me or God is with me. You know, sort of something that had a spiritual uh, aspect to the chanted meditation. And then they asked them to put their hand in an ice bath and hold it in there as long as they could until they really couldn't bear the pain uh, of that uh, hand in the ice bath anymore. The secular meditation group could uh, keep their hand in the ice bath for about 46 seconds. Uh, the relaxation training group could keep their hand in the ice bath for about 49 seconds. The spiritual meditation group were able to keep their hand in the ice bath almost twice as long, 92 seconds. How do we explain this? You know, it's how, uh, They weren't sorting them out by religious people, non-religious people. They, they, they were randomized into these three groups. But people meditating with a spiritual element to it were able to bear much more very objective, tangible pain. Incredible. And on that note, we're going to take a break and be back with another uh, riveting story and more data here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Paul Carson today about the health benefits of religious practices. So, Paul, one of the biggest things, all-cause mortality, less people dying. Do we have any evidence about that related to health, to religious practices? Yeah. So, Andrew, that's that was actually one of the ones that sort of shocked me the most because, you know, public health researchers and clinicians really like uh, the measure all-cause mortality as a, as a hard outcome that doesn't get kind of, you know, jury-rigged by different, you know, factors that can kind of influence you. It's like, did they die or not? And did they die of anything or not? <laughs> and, and so uh, when you when you look at religious practice, and people who are engaged in, in once weekly or more than once weekly religious practice compared to their religious counterparts, they live longer. So in a really interesting study that looked at uh, this by race, um, they found that uh, whites lived about seven years longer if they were regularly engaged in religious community compared to their a-religious counterparts. And listen, this adjusts for all the sort of things you might you know think kill you. So it adjusts for like baseline hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, you know, smoking, blah, blah, blah. It adjusts for all of that. And so it's just really, these are really good studies that take into all those other factors into account. And when you then parse them out by religious practice or not, 
seven years longer life in uh, Caucasians, 14 years longer life in African-Americans. What else oh, will do that? Right. What else can we prescribe? Yeah, nothing. Them do? Nothing, yeah, nothing. If you could put that into a pill, I think you'd be, you'd be doing pretty well. Yep. <laughs> so and, what, what is it that's different about religious practice yeah. that leads to improved health? So, you know, short of kind of saying it's a supernatural explanation, and there may be a component to that, but short of that, researchers aren't going to, you know, go there with that. So there's a, a number of different things that people sort of try to tease out to say what's explaining this. Healthy habits, you know, religious people maybe smoke less, have less promiscuous sex, take maybe less risks with other things, tend to try and, you know, maybe eat better or whatever. Um, social connections is probably the biggest one talked about, like, how rich is your network of friends and close relationships and people who you see and associate with? And and it, it is clear that people who are in religious community tend to have deeper, richer social connections. And we know that social connections are good for you no matter what kind of those social connections are. Forgiveness has been looked at as a predictor of health benefits and forgiveness um, uh, uh, plays in there. Another big one is purpose and meaning in one's life. And there are now uh, objective measures to try and assess how much purpose or meaning do you have in your life. That's highly predictive of better health outcomes, longer life. And then there's a number of others, gratitude, altruism, humility, hopefulness. These have all had standardized survey measures from high caliber researchers trying to look at these things. And they all play a role. Um, but when you, when you look at the healthy habits, you, it accounts for maybe 20 to 25% of this. There is still the biggest part of the effect is not explained by healthy habits. It's, it's one or more of these other things. And religion, you know, it, it turns out, you know, religious practice tends to package all of these things pretty well. Yeah. It would be hard to find another intervention that would package them in the same way. Right. You know, you, you had touched on social connectedness. Yeah. Um, what, what does the evidence reveal about that, just being more connected socially? Yeah. What do you mean by that? So it is definitely good for you. Uh, and, and in fact, other studies, uh, you know, happiness research shows it's one of the most important variables for happiness, way more important than like how much money you make or how much you know, wealth you have. Um, so deeper, richer, uh, more uh, social connections, family, friends uh, um, is, is good for your health. But um, and, and you can imagine that people who are engaged in religious community might have a richer network of social connections. But studies have looked at comparing religiously practicing people and their social connections compared to similar groups with social connections. I'm involved in Kiwanis or I'm involved in a sports club or I'm involved in, you know, uh, other social networks. And like one, one study I found very interesting was looking at outcomes after open heart surgery. And the socially connected a religious group did better than the non-socially connected uh, group, about the same as the religiously practicing group. But if you if you had both religious practice and you scored high on social connections, it was about it was about twice as good of an effect as just social connections without the religious um, aspect. This so would be there's more there's more to it than just the social connections. And well, I think in that study, Paul, you show that. Eight times more people died after open heart surgery if they had no group participation and no religious strength than if they had both. Correct. So it was two and a half percent died if they had both, 20% if they had neither, yeah. and 8% if they had either social connections or religious practice. Right. So if I'm going under the knife for my open heart surgery, <laughs> I want to have a good religious community backing me up. and uh, You, know, you want to go make friends. Talking to me and having my religious church. Uh, almost like you're made for community. <laughs> From the mouths of babes. There you go, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. So, Paul, another thing you like to talk about is forgiveness. And you have another gut-wrenching, encouraging story about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this story actually taught me a few things about this sort of how do I integrate my own faith into my practice. And it, it focuses on a, um, a, a woman, I'll, I'll say Annie. Uh, Annie came to me, um, uh, a bad methamphetamine addict with, uh, um, moderately advanced HIV infection, uh, an AIDS diagnosis at, at the time when I first saw her, um, and, uh, chronic hepatitis C and a number of other health problems. And when she first came to our clinic, uh, you know, tattooed head to toe, pierced head to toe, 
loud, brash, um, and all she was interested in was seeing if she could get, you know, drugs out of me. And, uh, and so it was a kind of a contentious relationship at first. And it was a contentious relationship uh, in the healthcare because I'm, I'm an infectious disease specialist. I'm interested in treating her HIV and her hep C. I'm not really interested in giving her narcotics, which is what she was interested in. And, um, and she was tough. I mean, she was just tough. And, uh, and my nurses would take a sort of heavy sigh when they saw she was on the schedule, kind of gird their loins for the day because they never knew quite what was coming. Uh, in fact, one time when we tried, when I got her to finally agree to go into treatment, the day before she came to my clinic, high as a kite, you know, going off to treatment and which lasted two days and she checked herself out. So I, I struggled with this person. I really struggled with this person. And I, I started praying for her and I started praying like, God, help me to see Christ in everyone. Cause this was not easy. I could, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I had a really hard time sort of seeing Christ in this person. You know, I'm, I'm not mother Teresa. I'm not good at this. And, um, and, and actually, a little bit later, I started telling her that I, I was too cowardly to pray with. I, I said, I'm praying for you. My family's praying for you. I hope that's okay. She said, yeah. Um, and over time, we kind of developed a sort of half-joking mutual respect for each other. We, we'd give each other a hug at the end of her visits. I followed her for 15 years. And, and, and it, there was a really a tipping point for me when she came to see me one day and she was having problems with dysfunctional uterine bleeding and I needed her to see a gynecologist. And I said, I got to refer you to one of my, my, my gynecology colleagues. And she said, please don't do that. I don't want to go see them. You take care of it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm an infectious disease doctor. You do not want me trying to manage this uterine bleeding. I, I'm, I can't do it. And, and, and we, and we started fighting like we regularly did. I'm like, you know, finally I'm like, why won't you go see the gynecologist? Like, come on, you know, why are you giving me a hard time over this? And she said, Dr. Carson, I know I make you crazy. I, I know we, I know we got our highs and lows and we're kind of like knocking heads regularly, but I know if I go there, they're going to look at my chart and they're going to look at me and they're going to see a piece of garbage. And she said, I know as much as I make you crazy, you don't see me as a piece of garbage. You treat me like a person. And, you know, boy, did that, that hit me. You know, that, that really hit me hard. And I, you know, I thank God for giving me some whiff of being able to see, you know, her humanity and maybe, you know, Christ in her. <clears throat> Over time, she started to ask me if I forgot to say it. She started to ask me. Hey, 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 she had this really raspy guy. Hey, Dr. Carson, are you and your family praying for me still? And, um, and I'd say, yeah, and, yeah. So, you know, and I said, but thanks for reminding me. I'm going to make sure we do that again. I'm going to pray for your health. I'm going to pray for your healing and I'm going to pray that you come to know God. You know, she had no, no faith background whatsoever. I later learned that her mother was a heroin addict who sold her into prostitution at the age of 14 for both of them to kind of support their drug ha habit that she started in her. And I thought, you know, I, I have no idea what this woman's life is like. I had no business sort of judging her in any way, shape, or form at all. And um, in the last year that I saw her, in fact, I think it was pretty close to the last visit I saw her, <clears throat> she asked me, she said, you know, Dr. Carson, you, you know, you're always talking to me about God and stuff. I want to tell you, I moved to another city and I got in a church there and there's these church ladies there. They're kind of these old church ladies and they really, they sort of take them to me and they, they're like, you know, they're kind of taking me under their wing. <laughs> you know, she was, you know, laughing about it. Oh, I said, <laughs> but she said, but then she got very, very quiet and she kind of, you know, uh, looked down at the desk and she said, I, but I got to ask you something. And she said, um, I, you know, you talked, they tell me about a God, this Jesus and God that can forgive anything. And she said, I've done a lot of bad things, a lot of bad things. And she'd been in and out of jail. I don't know half of what bad things she's talking about. And she said, I, it's hard for me to imagine a God that could forgive all the things I've done. And I, I would say probably one of the most gratifying things of my practice ever of my practice was being able to tell her <clears throat> that I knew um, God did that <clears throat> and that he'd already done that. Uh, you know, every, sorry, every time I tell this, I get a little choked up, but um, that was one of the last visits I had with her. I moved to academia. I handed her off to one of my colleagues and the next year he died in a car accident. And the other wonderful thing about uh, our faith is that I still pray for her. You know, we pray for the dead <clears throat> and, uh, 
I think that aspect of her care was far more important than the HIV drugs and the hepatitis C drugs that I was trying to treat her with over uh, over the 15 years that I cared for her. So, Paul, when we're looking at these things, we might think of forgiveness of our own forgiving others benefiting our health. But you bring up the fact that when we realize we are forgiven, it also helps our health. And this reminds me of one of the best lines from one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, when somebody asked him, why did you join the Catholic Church? To get my sins forgiven. Right. That was his answer. Yeah. I mean, his other answer, the other one I love of his is like, what's wrong with the world? Me. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I am. Yeah, I am what's wrong am. with the that's, world. You're right. I am. So, so, so that's beautiful, Paul. Uh, what a great example. And, and the third thing I know you want to talk about is what one of the mediating factors are is purpose and meaning in life. Tell us how that relates to health. Yeah, so that's, a, that's another interesting one. You know, so I, I love a couple of quotes here. One from a person I, I think is very witty, another person who I think got it right, but kind of scares me otherwise. Mark Twain, <laughs> first, first example, <laughs> says, you know, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. <laughs> right, so why am I here? Uh, the other one is Frederick Nietzsche, not somebody we Catholics or Christians turn too much to think about, but he said, he who has a why to live uh, to live for can handle almost any how. Yes. And um, and so interestingly, some some research there's there's a growing body of research on this. Uh, one of the studies that I find the most interesting, again, one of these very well done prospective cohort studies published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the highest impact journals we have, looked at recent retirees and did a survey on them, asking them about um, it was a standardized scale of purpose and meaning in their life. And they broke them down into um, uh, five groups. And the group scoring the lowest on having purpose and meaning in their life and then followed out over about um, uh, seven years um, had a 2.4-fold higher risk of dying uh, at the end of that seven years compared to their counterparts, matched for everything else, you know, uh, um, who had a high level of purpose or meaning in their life. Having little to no purpose or meaning in your life was about as bad as being a heavy smoker for <laughs> uh, for a couple of decades um, uh, compared to like a non-smoker. So here again, like, is this something we talk about? Uh, you know, uh, is, is this a modifiable risk factor? It's, um, it's nice to hear data on that because I think all of us have seen that or have anecdotal stories right. of patients who you can kind of tell they've just more or less given up. Right. And uh, they don't do well. And you can see that change in people sometimes. The question is, is how, how do we encourage people to attain more purpose and meaning? Right. So, again, we can't, you know, we'll get to this. We can't really prescribe religion. But, you know, you look at Christianity's answer to, what, you know, what is purpose and meaning? It's like, it's like the, again, the big kahuna. It's the granddaddy of them all. I mean, you're made for fellowship with God, to be an adopted son or daughter of the, of the living God. I mean, you, you can't imagine a higher, better sense of purpose and meaning in one's life. You can you, know, you can imagine people can say, well, I get purpose out of my career or my children or my family. And that's good. Um, but like, uh, you know, our faith has has a, one of the loftiest um, senses of purpose and meaning of all. Now, uh, that's a much bigger challenge um, on, on how do we how do we integrate that into a practice? Um, and, and maybe we can get to that as well. Well, that is the appropriate next um, question before we close these last, you know, four or five minutes. And that is we at Dr. Doctor are not recommending that you use a relationship with God as an end to better health. Yeah. Are we, Paul? No, that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. We're not saying go get religion so you can be healthy. God is an end in and of himself. He is the end. The end, yes. The, end. <laughs> the, purpose. Of, uh, the purpose, the end in and of himself. But this does show us that um, something about our, the way we are made has a spiritual component and that when we attend to it, we flourish, we do better. Um, it, it's sort of a natural law kind of uh, uh, you know, observation. So there are things that we can do. I mean, so uh, actually a, a professor at uh, University of California, Berkeley, has written a book on this. Like saying, you know, and he's a he teaches in the public health program there. He says, you know, the first thing we got to do is quit ignoring the elephant in the room. This is a big deal that nobody's talking about typically in clinical medicine or in public health. Uh, other things he talks about uh, from the public health side is that we really should be looking harder at how we can foster public health and faith community relationships. They have a natural symbiosis with each other, but we typically go, oh, hard line, church and state, can't go there, can't do that. 
we are missing out on an untapped reservoir for better uh, health in our communities. Um, <clears throat> he also called for, uh, um, you know, teaching to this more and developing curricula in our educational program in medical school, in med our medical schools and our public health schools. Um, in our practice, um, I think, you know, we can't ask um, a religious doctors or people that, that are atheists to kind of like start saying, well, I'll pray for you or I'll, you know, do all this. But uh, for everyone, yeah, um, all clinicians need to recognize that the majority of our patients have a spiritual life. I mean, we, we didn't get to that polling data, but most do, even if it's kind of squishy or soft or whatever, actually the, the rise of what we call the nuns, no religious affiliation, isn't a rise of secularism, humanism, atheism. It's a rise of, um, anti-isms. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's a rise of like, uh, just non-affiliated. Non-affiliated. They still believe in like, uh, you know, an amorphous, the force, you know, good in the universe somehow. Um, I'm looking for the word, the, uh, uh, you know, the spiritual, crystals, the, uh, the um, new age. New yeah. age. There you go. Thank you. That was, that was, that was the word I was looking for. It's sort, of, sort of new age stuff. And it, it's, it's fascinating that as um, orthodox belief declines, belief in ghosts, UFOs, the paranormal has risen. So it's not being replaced by cold-hearted, you know, secularism, atheism, humanism. It's being replaced by sort of a squishy spiritualism. So that's still something you can work with. So first recognizing that the majority of our, our patients have a spiritual life, even the nuns. And we need to take a spiritual history and probe the connections with a uh, significant social history. Um, I think we need to ask if we can't do this, you know, helping them engage in ourselves. We, we need to ask if they would like involvement of their clergy or a hospital chaplain. And we should encourage our patients to engage their spiritual resources. To, we should say, you know, this, this is going to be better for you if you get plugged back in with your faith community. If you get involved, this is, this is a good thing for you if you are so inclined. <clears throat> for believers, I think there's a higher bar here. The, the one is the, the hard le lesson I learned the hard way. We're trying to work to see Christ in everyone and praying for that gift. Um, sharing our stories of where faith helped you or helped others manage their illness or their suffering. Offering to pray for, kind of easy, <laughs> offering to pray with, a little harder at least was for me, offering to pray with our patients, and then um, following through on those uh, offers, you know, praying for them, and, and amazing things can happen with that. I do think that comes with a need to recognize there's a power differential in that doctor-patient relationship that that we should not yes. exploit and proselytize, but it's, an, you know, it's a question seeing if there's something there to connect with and, and an invitation, but not, you know, thumping our Bible or, or, you know, saying you need to get Jesus now or whatever. They're not there necessarily to see us uh, about that. Although it's interesting. I could tell you other stories where some of my patients, that's all they wanted to talk about later when we kind of opened the store. <laughs> that's all they wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about their, you know, chronic infections. Or Paul, this has been fascinating. I know our listeners are going to love this. Thank you for sharing another side of yourself. Uh, especially those stories. God bless you. Thanks for being with us again on Doctor Doctor. Thank Great you, Paul. Great to you both, Andrew and Tom. And we're back now with Doctor Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, this deals with public health versus personal health. How much is our health affected by what happens in a doctor's office or a hospital compared to what happens to different public health initiatives that affect? large groups of people. And we learned that 20% of our health is genetically determined. We can't change it. But 80% we can. So all that 80%, what percent is attributed to personal care and what percent to public health? Amazingly, only 10% of our health is attributed to what happens in a doctor's office or in a hospital. 70% is what we would consider public health. And that's split up further 50% healthy behaviors and 20% the environment that is, you know, clean water, clean air, um, safe streets, etc. So we might think, erroneously, that public spending goes this 10%, 70%, or one-eighth to individual, seven-eighths to public health. It's actually pretty much the opposite. 88% of health dollars go toward 10% of health benefits and individual care, and 12% of health dollars goes to the other, um, you know, 70%. Just, just incredible. And Andrew, what are your top three takeaways for this episode? 
Man, I I really like this one. I love talking to Dr. Carson. I guess number one is that the religious practice benefits for everybody's health is something that even secular doctors and healthcare places will respect because this is objective data. This is not done by religious organizations. Um, I'd say number two, that we should encourage this. We should encourage this uh, for medical people. We should encourage this in our patients and as patients, we should bring it up with our doctors and not to proselytize like Dr. Carson said, but you know, when I'm seeing somebody with depression, it would be worthwhile asking, Hey, do you, do you have a, a faith life? Do you go to church? I would keep doing that. Or I would think about going back to that. So I'd say number two, we should encourage this. And then number three, the thing that really struck me actually is how good this is for, for both parties, you know, and Dr. Carson brought up that great story about his patient that uh, really, I mean, kind of walking that journey. There's so many ways that you can be witness uh, to your faith and and be Christ for someone else and see Christ in them that this really goes both ways. So I'm, I'm happy to have a little bit more data that I can point to when, when talking about this with people. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to review and rate our show to help new listeners find us. Tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at redeemerradio.com doctor. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.